So, Robbie Holt, in 2002, Janelle and I moved to England and didn't know anyone. We sold all our stuff and just moved over. And there was an American who had gotten there right before us. He was studying with the same guy, a guy named Craig Bartholomew, as I was studying with. And uh, he was very extroverted, more than I knew a person could be. And um, he's married to Chrissy. We became good friends. And Robbie and Chrissy are from Chattanooga. Robbie is uh, one of my big memories of Robbie and Chrissy is their youngest child, who's our oldest child's age. When we offered to have them over for dinner, she threw up all over our living room. White carpet, White carpet that's right. It was chocolate cake. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's a, that's a memory. So Robbie, for real though, Robbie is one of the most intelligent people I've ever known. He is the very best interpreter of the Bible that I've ever been around in my life. Um, he's the pastor of a PCA, a Presbyterian church in Chattanooga, North Shore Fellowship. And um, he does a whole lot of other things. They have four children. They have two grandchildren. And their third child had the first grandchild. Uh, beat the oldest daughter to that by a few months. So I, I am so glad you came. So Robbie re, uh, recently has written this book, Practicing the King's Economy, Honoring Jesus and How We Work, Earn, Spend, Save, and Give. He's co-written this with a guy named Michael Rhodes. And they're here. They're for sale for $10. Um, we've got a box of those. You can Mike Medley will organize all of that. I think $10 is... Um, it must, I don't know how, how we are doing that, but anyway, that's what they are. He's going to speak from this, this weekend, about honoring God in these kinds of ways. And Robbie's been living this out uh, for, for a long time. Good evening. Robbie and Chrissy, thanks so much for coming. It's out. a great privilege to be with you, with my good friend Aubrey, who's such a good friend, he's even willing to make up nice things about me. So, thank you for that, Aubrey. Um, I want to reflect a little bit on that passage that was read for us, the Old Testament passage about Rahab. I want to reflect a little bit about Rahab's decision. Before that, let me say a brief prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son to rescue us from this present evil age. Thank you for bringing us into the kingdom of your beloved son. I pray that you would help us tonight as we consider your word help us to see that you really have rescued us and you are reshaping us to bear witness to your kingdom which has come which is coming which will come in glorious consummation help us see and believe it together in Jesus name amen so let's think for a minute about Rahab's decision she lived in a walled city in Jericho. She saw another kingdom coming on its way, and she had a really big decision to make. Will I keep my allegiance in the walled, wealthy, 
powerful city of which I am presently a part, or will I bend the knee to the kingdom that it's on, that is on its way? You and I at some point in our lives have found ourselves in a very similar situation, have we not? At some point we thought the world was about our own glory, our own agenda, our own ideas, but then we met King Jesus, and King Jesus summoned us to leave behind whatever kingdom we were serving as first importance, whatever king to whom we were given chief allegiance, Jesus summoned us away from that kingdom to follow him and to enter the kingdom that he was bringing. Did you hear those words from the New Testament lesson? I hope you have your Bibles and you can see Galatians 1, 3 through 4. Uh, this is what was read, and this is a parallel with Rahab's life. Galatians 1, uh, the Apostle Paul begins his letter to the church in Galatia like he does uh, all his 13 letters. Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul begins 13 out of 13 letters announcing the grace and peace of God. And then he says this amazing statement about the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we had a Q&A fill in the blank without the passage in front of us, we might say Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from. And we might say guilt, sin, condemnation, death. One of those, all those things that are, you know are true from the Bible. But in this passage, what Paul says is that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. And that all automatically tips us off to the complexity of the New Testament and the complexity of our own lives. You and I live in the present evil age just as the church in Galatia in that part of what we now call Turkey of Asia Minor, uh, just as they lived after the death and resurrection of Jesus before his glorious turn, return, you and I live after the death and resurrection and ascension of King Jesus and before his glorious return. So we live in the present evil age, but in some sense we've already been rescued from it. That tells us something about the tension and complexity of the New Testament and our lives. The present evil age continues, but we've already been rescued from it. You and I are already citizens of an age to come. The age to come has already broken into this present evil age. It's already here. It's broken in. Like Rahab, we have to decide which kingdom do we think will be standing when the dust settles. Which age will be the most valuable? Which age do we want to identify with? The present evil age or the age that's already here, but it's coming in more fullness? One of the ways the New Testament talks about the kingdom of God coming is talking about the age, the ages in which we live. You and I are citizens of the present evil age, but we've been rescued by it through the death of Jesus Christ. We're now, if we believe in Jesus, we're identified with God. We're citizens of the age to come. It's already here, but not yet in fullness. Here's another way that New Testament talks about it. I want you, if you have your Bibles, look at Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14. It's going to tell us the kingdom is here, and we are in it. Listen to the language of Colossians 1, uh, 13 and 14. Uh, 
God has delivered us from the domain or kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And once again, that forgiveness of sin comes up. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I'll read it to you again. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we already have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Do you see the pattern that's the same there? Galatians 1, 4 says, we've been rescued from the present evil age. We know the age to come isn't here fully but we've already been rescued from the present evil age. Here in Colossians, the way Paul talks about that is that we have been rescued from the domain of darkness and we've been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. That kingdom is already here, but it's not yet here in fullness. It's possible that there's somebody here who are, you're more like in Rahab's shoes in that original day. Maybe your allegiance really is to the present evil age and the way the kingdoms of this world work presently and that's where your real allegiance is. And here's the good news of the kingdom of God. God says to everyone who is currently being broken and dehumanized by these kingdoms and this evil age, God welcomes us to come out of these dehumanizing broken kingdoms and the evil age and come to him through faith in Jesus Christ. He invites us to see ourselves like Rahab, to say, even though we lived in a walled city where it feels safe sometimes, to say, you know what, this city, this wall is coming down. And when the dust settles, the only kingdom that's going to matter is the kingdom of God. And this is how Jesus often talks about the kingdom, right? When Jesus showed up, he said, I have, a, I have good news. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. So Jesus in his life and ministry, was frequently saying that he was bringing the kingdom, the kingdom of God was breaking into this world. And then he told all these parables about the kingdom is here and it's growing imperceptibly like a mustard seed. It's a very tiny seed, but it eventually produces an enormous tree that will fill itself with all the different types of birds. But its beginning is very small and hard to perceive. The kingdom of God is like leaven, thrown into batches of dough. It's eventually going to work its, all the way, its way all the way through that dough and completely overtake it. But in its initial stages, it's small and hard to perceive. So Jesus told parables about this. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is growing. And Jesus told a lot of parables about the return of the master. One day the king is going to return and we ought to be ready for that. And so most of us, I think, in this room have already identified with King Jesus We've already lived through that experience of Rahab. We've said, oh, the kingdom I'm part of now. I see the real king, Jesus. I the, and he, he invites me to enter. I see that he's bringing the kingdom one day in fullness, and I am with Jesus. And so we've already made the same decision Rahab made. We've identified with the right king, and we're re waiting for the fullness of that kingdom to come. So for a minute, I want us to think not only about Rahab's decision, but Rahab's destitution. When I was growing up, people didn't say the word prostitute a lot, but they used synonyms for prostitute. And when adults talked about prostitutes using synonyms for prostitutes, they were using them metaphorically, and they were talking about other women 
who they held the lowest possible regard. It was, a, it was the lowest way you could describe another person. And so growing up, I thought, oh, I know who prostitutes are. They're, they're terrible people. They're just terribly wicked people. That's who they are. And, and if someone ever, when I was a child growing up, talked about actual prostitutes, well, then I understood that they talked in hushed tones because I, you know, I grew up in the South and, you know, everything um, was talked about in hushed tones in my home. Discretion was the whole part of valor. Um, uh, we learned how to sweep things under the rug and, and, and we, anyway... And it just never dawned on me growing up because that was my perception of prostitutes. They were just the really, really bad, wicked people. It never dawned on me that little girls didn't grow up wanting to become prostitutes. I didn't think about that. I didn't think about why do, why do people become prostitutes? I didn't, I didn't think about that. I didn't, I didn't think about the economic destitution and desperation that might tempts you in that direction. I didn't know anything about human trafficking. I didn't know that people were forced into prostitution. I didn't know that some people in their imagination, that's the only way. They're so alienated from family and life, and maybe, maybe they're so severely addicted, or, or maybe they're under the thumb of some kind of pimp who's just a very harsh, brutal, violent person, or maybe they really are being trafficked. I just... I just never thought about that. That when, if someone becomes a prostitute, they're not only doing things that are forbidden, they're a deeply desperate person. And so Rahab, growing up in Jericho, she was used to the economic systems in which she lived. She was used to the culture and the systems and the laws and the rules. And maybe one reason, uh, she was the one who reached out and helped the spies as maybe she had a deep longing for a better kingdom. And so it helps my imagination to think about what may have led Rahab to that kind of life. And it's helpful for me to think about the people in my own city. I have a friend, I'll talk about her later in this week, named Mimi, uh, who has this phenomenal ministry in Chattanooga, reaching out to addiction-trapped prostitutes. Because she was trafficked. She's the daughter of a doctor from one of the nicest neighborhoods in Birmingham. And she was trafficked by her neighbor, the young man just a couple years older than her, who was also the son of a doctor in one of the nicest neighborhoods in Birmingham, Alabama. She was trafficked by him beginning at age 12 and became addicted to drugs and eventually led to uh, all kinds of trouble. So we'll talk about her later in the week. But my friendship with her is helping me open my eyes and think about how is it that people end up in a lifestyle like this? And one of the great things about the story of Rahab is not only does it illustrate this amazing decision that God invites us to see and to make, to identify with him and his kingdom, but also reminds us that God is in the business of rescuing severely desperate people. God is in the business of taking people that are destitute, that are helpless and hopeless, and bringing them into his own family. And that's exactly what the story of Rahab is. Because as you know, 
Rahab is the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus, which is wonderful. She's in the genealogy of our Savior, just like Ruth is, who we'll talk about some tomorrow. And that's a wonderful thing to think about, that in the story that the Bible tells us, this one big unified, unfinished story that involves us, the God whose kingdom has come, is growing, and will finally come, that God is a really generous and gracious God who loves to rescue people who do not think they have any other hope. And since Aubrey mentioned this book, I'll tell you why my friend Michael and I wrote it. We wrote it because the church in North America is waking up to God's passionate heart for the poor, but we don't always know how to walk alongside the poor, how to actually care for the poor. And so that's what the book's about. This weekend, I'm going to talk about some of those themes. And I'm going to bring this homily to a quick close by saying this. Now, here's here's how I grew up uh, participating with my dad and my church, uh, caring for the poor in my own city. It was basically a soup kitchen model. And in the soup kitchen model, people like us, we have stuff on this side of the soup kitchen. We have stuff. And on that side of the soup kitchen, you don't have stuff. And here's how I take care of the poor. I've got lots of extra stuff, and you don't have enough stuff, so I take some of my extra stuff, and I give you some of that stuff. And you know what? That's called relief work, and it needs to happen. Because there are people that don't have enough food to eat, and so I'm not slamming relief work at all. Relief work is important. It's just not enough. Because God and his kingdom is not just relieving hopeless and helpless sinners. God is recovering his own image bearers to live like those who are designed, created by God to rule over his whole creation with dignity and power to reflect the glory of God. And so if you, can, if you have a piece of paper to pin, you can draw a triangle. Uh, or, or if you don't, you can use your imagination. Who gave himself for our sins... Well, here in a minute. Our book is about stopping the, not, I'm sorry, enhancing the soup kitchen model and replacing it or enhancing it with a potluck model. What we want is to walk alongside people who are presently materially poor and have a lot of other types of poverty along with it as we do. And we want to see people brought to a place, not where they're just receiving handouts, but where their lives are reshaped in ways where they're bringing their gifts to the potluck. So they have the dignity of bringing and uh, increasing and that the, the, they they're living the truth that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Okay, so we're, part of the book is about moving from the soup kitchen model to a potluck model. But here's the vision. I want you to, if, if you have a piece of paper, draw a triangle or do it in your mind. Okay, draw a triangle. And this, I'll end on this and we'll dive in more tomorrow. Here, here, here's what we're trying to do in this book, and we'll talk about some of these themes this weekend. Uh, if you draw a triangle on the bottom, on the very bottom line, write the word relief. Relief is important. We have to do the work of relief. Uh, there's one other author that, uh, that, that helped us produce the book named Brian Fickert. Uh, Michael and I wrote it. This guy named Brian helped us a lot. Uh, he edited it with us. Uh, he wrote a book called When Helping Hurts, and that's the next level. So above relief, write the word development. So, you know, should we, God's people who've been relieved by God's grace, work to relieve others? Absolutely. 
but also should we develop them? We should. That, we should. We should not leave people in a place of handouts and relief. We should develop people. Okay, but above that, so you got relief on the bottom, you got development in the middle. At the top line, at the top of the triangle, write the word partnership. And that's really what we're aiming for in this book and what I want to invite you guys to imagine what could be true for you at the Church of the Incarnation in Harrisonburg. Uh, how can you grow in seeing the neediest people in your city not only relieved, not only developed, but becoming your indispensable partners and seeing a new city bearing witness to the age that is to come, bearing witness to the kingdom that is to come, bearing witness to the city that will surely come when our Lord returns for us. That's what we'll be talking about this weekend. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you relieved us When we had infinite debt, you canceled the record that stood against us by nailing it to the cross. Hallelujah. Thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for the privilege of kneeling in your presence tonight and naming some of those sins and receiving, again, your sentence of pardon by faith through the work of Jesus Christ. And thank you that through your people, through the church, you develop your children. You develop our gifts. You remind us who we are. You strengthen us to do every good work. And Lord, in your unfathomable mystery, you created us to be your vice regents, to be your partners. And you've rescued us to partner with you to bear witness to this glorious kingdom until your son brings it to consummation. Would you build our faith? Would you enhance our hope? Would you convince us ever more of your love and make us people of love together this weekend? In Jesus' name, by your spirit, amen.